Good morning. Is that loud enough now, Ron? <laughs> uh, I know everybody's kind of trickling in, and, and, and we'll have some more people coming in as we go, but we, we need for the sake of time to go ahead and, and get started this morning. So uh, let me welcome you all back this morning to the Amarillo Reformed Fellowship Fall Conference uh, in conjunction with the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. Uh, my name is Russ Baker. For those of you who don't know, I'm the pastor of Westview Christian Church here in Amarillo, Texas. And now, uh, I know we have some who may not have been able to be here for yesterday evening's sessions. Uh, if that's the case, uh, uh, let me take care of just a few more announcements uh, before we begin this morning. Uh, first, let me say a few words about Amarillo Reform Fellowship. Uh, if you're not familiar with us, we've been around for quite a while here in Amarillo. Uh, the ARF, as we call it, is an alliance of pastors from various denominational backgrounds united together around the gospel of Jesus Christ, which we all believe, and this is our distinctive, that it is most clearly understood through the Reformed tradition. And though we have more pastors than, uh, who participate in the fellowship than, than are uh, represented by the local churches, I do want to acknowledge the generous support of, of some local churches here in, in, in Amarillo who, and Canyon who have uh, made this event possible. Uh, the first is Christ Covenant Presbyterian Church, uh, Evangelical Fellowship Church of Amarillo, First Baptist Church of Canyon, and Westview Christian Church of Amarillo. Um, if you want to know more about ARF, you can uh, feel free to go to our website. It's arfellowship.org, arfellowship.org. And uh, if you, by chance, weren't able to come yesterday evening, know that uh, those uh, sessions have been recorded and that audio will be available at a later date here. Um, so, one last thing as far as ARF goes, if you have benefited from this conference so far and would like to ensure that we're able to continue to do these conferences, and we, we try to do a larger conference like this at least every other year, uh, if you would like to make sure that happens in the future, uh, there are donation baskets at, at all of the entrances into this auditorium, and you can make checks payable to Christ Covenant Presbyterian Church. So with that out of the way, let me remind you of few, a few housekeeping items. Uh, there's coffee and water available outside in the hallway behind me, but we would ask that, uh, that you only bring the water back in with you. They're trying to avoid spilling coffee on the carpets. Um, second, we're going to be taking a lunch break from noon to 1.30, and during that time we're hosting a lunch question and answer session with Dr. Burke, uh, Dr. Burke for pastors, church officers, and staff along with their families. And so if you haven't registered with us for this lunch, uh, the, you can still come if, if you fit into one of those categories. Uh, we would just like for you to let uh, Blake or myself know so that just in case we need to, to get more food, we can do that. Um, and so see us after this first uh, session, if you would. And so with the preliminaries out of the way, I'd like to introduce our speaker for this weekend. Uh, Dr. Denny Burke holds a PhD from Southern Baptist Theological Seminary. He's, he's published numerous articles in many reputable journals, including the Journal for the Study of the New Testament and Journal of the Evangelical Theological Society. Additionally, Dr. Burke has authored numerous books, but most relevant for our discussion this weekend uh, in this subject matter, he is the author of Transforming Homosexuality and What is the Meaning of Sex. And as Blake said yesterday, Dr. Burke is uh, 
a man who wears many hats. Uh, he is professor of biblical studies at Boyce College. Uh, he is also a pastor at Kenwood Baptist Church in Louisville, and he's the president of the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. And so with that said, Dr. Burke, we want to thank you once again for coming up uh, and sharing with us, and the pulpit is all yours. Good morning to you. You are the, the faithful. Here you are. I'm going to make myself ready in case I have an episode like I did last night. Well, let's open up with prayer. Father, we are so grateful for the way that you have loved us through your son, Jesus. That you have demonstrated your love for us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. You didn't wait for us to draw near to you. You drew near to us through him. And now you've called us to yourself to be a people chosen, holy, for your own possession. And I pray that this morning we would show that by being submissive to your word. So open up our eyes that we might behold wonderful things from your law. Incline our hearts to your testimonies and not to dishonest gain. Establish your word to your servants as that which produces reverence for thee. And we ask you to do it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, it is no secret that sometimes the church's deepest commitments are often clarified and expressed in the midst of its greatest crises. Time and again throughout history, assaults on the, on the Christian faith have led to clarifications of the Christian faith. And sometimes the challenges can become so acute and so fundamental that faithfulness to Christ requires explicit declaration in the face of error. Uh, in his own time, Dietrich Bonhoeffer believed that the church in Germany was facing just such a threat. You all know who Bonhoeffer is. He was a Christian pastor uh, during the, uh, Hitler's Germany. And Bonhoeffer heroically resisted at a time when it was costly to resist. He ended up, in the end, losing his life over this. And one author, Jill Caratini, described the situation this way. And I'm going to read to you. She said, Dietrich Bonhoeffer declared a state of status confessionis. It's a Latin phrase, status confessionis. He declared a state of status confessionis for the church under Nazi journey. Status confessionis, literally a state of confessing, is a dire situation in which the church must stand up for the integrity of the gospel and the authority of the God it confesses. For Bonhoeffer and others, the Nazification of the church was an issue so threatening to the veracity of their confession of Christ that no dissimulation or concession was possible. Bonhoeffer recognized that the Nazi persecution of Jews demanded a serious response from the church. But more so he recognized that the church was called not only to bandage the victims under the wheel, but to jam a spoke into the wheel itself and bring the engine of injustice to a halt. Confessing Christ was a theology that could not be held without obligation. 
when we think of the situation that Bonhoeffer faced and the situation that you and I are facing in the wake of the sexual revolution, I want to ask you, do you think our situation is any less dire? Now, to be sure, we're not facing anything like Nazi Germany in our, our moment, in that kind of armed conflict. But that doesn't mean that we aren't facing a dire threat to the church's integrity and witness. And the threat that we face is not due merely to influences from outside the church. Even within the evangelical movement, as we talked about last night, even within our own movement, we are not all on the same page. Some of you may have seen uh, a few years ago a book um, titled Understanding Gender Dysphoria. Uh, it was written by a man named Mark Yarhouse, out of curiosity. Anybody here know that, familiar with that book? Well, it came out in 2015. It was titled Understanding Gender Dysphoria. You can look it up. Until very recently, it was the most comprehensive response to the transgender question by somebody within the evangelical movement. This book, when it came out three years ago, it made Yarhouse the go-to guy on this issue uh, among evangelicals. In fact... When the whole Caitlyn Jenner thing happened in 2015, Christianity Today had Mark Yarhouse write their feature story on transgenderism and gender dysphoria. On the Gospel Coalition website, they reviewed Mark Yarhouse's book. And the review on the website says that this book marks a step forward in Christian engagement with gender issues. And yet, when you read the book, Yarhouse says that if you have a gender-confused child cross-dressing might be the best prescription for him. For adults dealing with transgender feelings, Yarhouse argues that sex change surgery might in some cases be the best prescription for them. So what I want to say to you this morning is that if Christians are unable to discern that cross-dressing children and sex change surgeries might, uh, are, are bad, if they're unable to discern that, we are indeed in a status confessionis, a state of confession. Now, before I get into the heart of my argument this morning, I, I want to define some terms for us. Because some of these things are so new, um, again, people are not sure what we're talking about. Transgender, that word, is a catch-all term that refers to the many ways that uh, people might perceive their gender identity to be out of sync with their biological sex. Until recently, that uh, condition was regarded by the um, psychiatric community as a disorder. Um, the, the, diagnostic manual of and the diagnostic and statistic manual of mental disorders had classified it as, as gender identity disorder. But what happened in 2013, there was a fifth edition that came out of that book. They removed that experience from its list of disorders and replaced it with a term called gender dysphoria. How many of you have heard that term before, gender dysphoria? So now that's the clinical term for this, gender dysphoria. And they did this in part to remove the stigma from the transgender experience so that transgender people wouldn't have to say that they had a psychological disorder if they felt a mismatch between their identity and their biological sex, the way that they perceive themselves and their biological sex. And so... The new edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, it's called the DSM. It's like the Bible for psychiatrists. Um, they, they just wanted to focus on the dysphoria. Dysphoria is the opposite of euphoria. 
Euphoria is like a really intense good feeling. Dysphoria is the opposite of that. It's mental distress. And so they're focusing on people who have gender mental distress. And so the issue no longer was that there was a mismatch. That's not so much an issue. It's just if you feel bad about it. If you feel distress over it, then that distress needs to be relieved. And in, it, there can be a number of different ways to do that, including through cross-gender identification, sex change surgeries, hormone therapies, all the rest. So what I want to do for the rest of my time this morning on, in this first session is to outline how the Bible teaches us about the distinction between male and female. And first of all, the Bible tells us that there is a distinction that's the first thing. But then it also tells us, I think, at least three things about the nature of that distinction. So that's where we're going this morning. So three things about the nature of the distinction between male and female that's going to help us to think correctly and biblically about the transgender moment that we're, we're facing. So here, here's the three things. The distinction between male and female is biological, it's social, and it's good. That's, that's it. It's biological. It's social and it's, it's good. So the first thing is the distinction between male and female is biological. Open up your Bibles if you have them to Genesis chapter 1 and verses 26 through 28. I'll start reading in verse 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him, male and female he created them. Now notice in verse 26 that the accent is on what the man and the woman have in common. It says obviously that they're both created in, in God's Image. They are both given the responsibility to rule over God's good creation. They are to be, as it were, God's vice regents, ruling on his behalf over the world that God has made. That, that's what they have in common. But in verse 27, the accent is on difference. So he talks about what they have in common. They're both made in his image. They're both ruling on his behalf. But then in verse 27, there's an accent on difference. Because it says, and God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. There's our distinction. There's our difference. So these divine image bearers come in two distinct genres. Male and female. And it's precisely here at this point that the biblical revelation is in direct contrast to the aims of the transgender moment that we live in. What do I mean by that? It's really not that there's a big controversy today, at least at the popular level, about there being a difference between male and female. The controversy is about how to define that difference. What makes male and female different? Is it a biological thing? Is it a self-concept? Or is it something else altogether? And the way you answer that question is going to determine which side of the divide you fall on. You know, a, a while back, uh, I received this heartbreaking letter from the parents of a transgender child. And they had a son who had grown up with these gender-conflicted feelings just through, throughout his childhood and on into adulthood. 
And as an adult, their son, nevertheless, went ahead and got married to a woman and had children with her. After being married for a number of years, he decided to end his marriage and to embrace this identity that he'd been struggling with his whole life. And he was going to transition his appearance to that of a female. And eventually, he even underwent um, so-called sex change surgery. Now, I say so-called because there's really no such thing as a sex change surgery. You can't change your biological sex. You can surgically alter your body and try to make it look like the other, but you don't actually become the other. I hope everybody understands that, right? You can't actually become the other sex. You just kind of reshape your body through surgery to sort of look like the other. But it doesn't, if you have XY chromosomes, you will continue to have XY chromosomes. And if you have XX, you'll continue to have XX. So you don't really change. But this guy went through a sex, a so-called sex change surgery. And the parents were writing to me to tell me that they support the transition and the surgery because they believe that their son's transgender identity is the result of his brain sex being mismatched with his biological sex. Now, these parents are writing to me as self-professed Christians. And they're trying to make a case to me based on their Christian views of things. And so they said his brain sex was mismatched with his biological sex. They believe his mind has always been female, even though his body has always been male. But because the brain is the most important human sex organ, they wrote to me, they believe that he was simply born with the wrong genitals. And they claim that Scripture is silent about the biological factors that distinguish male from female and that there is no scriptural authority. They told me this. No scriptural authority for prioritizing genital anatomy over brain structure and function. And so for that reason, they feel like their child's body needed to be transformed through surgery so that it would match his mind. So they support their child's gender reassignment surgery, even though it cost him his marriage and his family. Now, these parents have bought into what psychologists call a brain sex theory. And the brain sex theory says, it, it, the brain sex theory of uh, transgender development, okay. Th this brain sex theory says that brain, our brains script us towards male or female behaviors and dispositions. But sometimes, for whatever reason, our brain's gender doesn't match up to that of our biological sex, according to this theory. And when that's the case, proponents of brain sex theory believe that what a person thinks about him or herself should trump whatever God has revealed through biological sex. And that's what these parents believed. They affirmed what their son had done because his brain sex trumps whatever his body was saying about his biological sex. And so they wrote to me and they said, These are, this is a quote, you have chosen without any scriptural authority that I can find to prioritize genital anatomy over brain structure and function in determining sex and gender. End quote. And so I'm reading to you this because this is a claim that you're hearing more and more in popular culture. And, and the people in your church, they're hearing this too. They are being told that brain structures determine a person's sex and gender, not their reproductive anatomy. And many Christians are beginning to believe it. Now, let me just say this parenthetically. If, uh, this is an argument of convenience 
and of propaganda. Because if you look at the actual scientific literature, even the DSM, the, the, the DSM that I told you about, they, nobody knows why people experience gender conflicted feeling in, the, in that community. There are different theories as to why it comes about and why it happens in people. Again, theories differ between nature versus nurture, but they, there is no scientific consensus about this. So the people writing me this letter had a certain um, confidence in what science is telling them, but I already knew that the science, there is no consensus they can appeal to. It's just one theory versus another. But they, were, they really believed it. They believed brain structure and function determines sex, not reproductive anatomy. But notice what Genesis 1.27 says. Everybody look at verse 27. Excuse me, 128. And God blessed them. Who did he bless? The male and female that he had just named, right? He blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Now think about this, what God says to the male and female. He says, be fruitful and multiply. Now you know what that means. The creation mandate requires procreation within the covenant of marriage. That's what the creation mandate requires for male and female. It requires procreation. You tell me. Does God use the terms male and female to refer to brain structures? Or do male and female refer to the differences in the reproductive systems of the man and the woman? You know the answer to this question. We don't procreate with our brains. As one author has put it, Ryan Anderson, he says, The fundamental conceptual distinction between a male and a female is the organism's organization for sexual reproduction. That's what's reflected in nature, and it's certainly what's reflected in Moses' creation account in Genesis chapter 1. When he says, when God says male and female, it's referring to biological realities, how the body is organized for, for reproduction. That means, there's implications of, of this for us as we think about this. That means that if a body says male, but the brain is saying female, the brain is wrong. In a fallen world where the noetic effects of sin still prevail, what we think about ourselves is often mistaken. And that's certainly the case with those undergoing some sort of a transgender experience. The distinction between male and female is first of all biological and the biological distinction in view has to do with the body's organization for reproduction. Quite apart from any consideration of brain structures, whatever those may be. If this is true, there are massive implications for how you are supposed to think about and minister the gospel to people who are struggling with these gender-confused feelings. It means that you can tell them on the authority of God's word that their body isn't lying to them. A person's maleness or femaleness isn't socially constructed or self-constructed, but God-constructed. Sex is not something that is assigned at birth. It is something that is revealed by God in his special distinct design of male and female bodies. That's what sex is. 
the world is telling gender-confused people that if they perceive themselves to have a gender identity at odds with their bodily identity, then the mind takes precedence over the body. The world is telling them to take steps to conform the body to the gender-confused mind rather than conform the gender-confused mind to what is clearly revealed by the body. That's what the world is telling them. And if that means dressing the body in clothing, <coughs> excuse me, if that means dressing the body in clothing associated with the opposite sex, then so be it. If that means reshaping the body through amputation of healthy sexual organs, then so be it. The fallen mind trumps the creator's design of the body. And what God has revealed about maleness and femaleness through the body can be set aside. That's what the world is essentially saying. But this lie is precisely what we must prepare people to resist by pointing them to Scripture and to nature. That's the point I'm trying to make here. Both of which are teaching us that the distinction between male and female is biological according to the body's organization for reproduction. So, so that's the, f- the first thing we have to get about, understand about those who are claiming a transgender experience. We have to be able to see and to say, no matter what somebody else is claiming, that the distinction between male and female is first of all biological. Okay? Now the second thing is related to the first. That the, the distinction between male and female is also social. Now turn over one page to Genesis chapter 2 and look at verse 18. Then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make a helper fit for him. Now drop down to verse 21. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man... And while he slept, took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife And they they shall become one flesh, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Now, while the basic biological differences between male and female may be clear enough from what we just saw in chapter 1, such is not often also the case when we look at the social roles that stem from biological differences. At the very least, these differences are fiercely contested, even among people who claim to be Christians. And yet, scriptural revelation clearly teaches a social distinction between male and female. And the foundational text for this is the one we just read in Genesis 2, in verses 18 through 25. This text reveals that there is both sexual complementarity and gender complementarity embedded in, in God's good creation. Now, to understand what I mean about sexual complementarity and gender complementarity, um, we have to understand the conventional distinction that people make between sex and gender. Sex refers to one's biological organization for reproduction. Okay, we already talked about that. Gender is, is usually used as a social term. 
Gender refers to the social manifestation of one's biological sex. That's how I'm defining it. I'm defining it as the social manifestation of one's biological sex. Sex is a physical bodily reality. Gender is a socio-cultural reality. Now the difference between what I'm telling you and what more secular people would tell you today is that gender is totally socially constructed. The spirit of the age is telling you that the relationship between gender and sex is purely conventional and in no way essential. It's telling you that that gender is a social construct, that it's a set of customs and behaviors that, that a person learns, but which have no essential or intrinsic relation to biological sex. And that's why they argue that some people's gender identity doesn't match their bodily identity and we shouldn't be upset about that when that happens. It's just, you know, your gender, the, the fact that you think of yourself as a male or a female, you just learned that from your, the way you were raised and your social customs, okay? You just kind of learned that. But if somebody feels that to be different, there's nothing about them that makes them, you know, tied to the gender identity they were assigned at birth. But is that what Scripture really teaches? Well, the answer to that obviously is no, because look at verse 18. In verse 18, the word helper, corresponding to Adam, designates a social role, doesn't it? It designates a social role for Eve within her marriage to Adam, a role that is inextricably linked to her biological sex. Adam's creation before Eve designates a social role within his marriage to Eve, a role that is inextricably linked to his biological sex. He is, what we're going to talk more about this in the next two talks, but he is to be the leader and the protector and the provider within that marriage covenant, that first marriage covenant. And those social roles within the covenant of marriage are not only creational realities, they are commanded of them in Scripture. Uh, We see this later. We'll see it in 1 Corinthians 11. We'll talk about that in the next two sessions. You'll also see it in Ephesians 5. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. He's the head of the church. Basically saying you've got to be a head just like Jesus was a head. You're the head of your bride just like he's the head of his bride. Wives are supposed to affirm that, that leadership. Those are social roles within the covenant of marriage about how the man and the woman in that covenant are to relate to one another. And they can't switch those roles. Those roles are assigned to them on the basis of what? Biological sex. Whoever's the man has a role as the leader. Whoever's the woman has a role to affirm that leadership within within marriage. So those are social roles that are tied to biological sex. Now, these aren't the only social roles that people have, okay? It's just the ones that attach to the covenant of marriage, right? Some people will hear this and object. Well, now, wait a minute. Those are covenantal obligations that apply narrowly to marriage, not creational distinctions that apply to every man and every woman, regardless of their marital status. To which I would respond, yeah, that's true. Um, but it's all, there's also an element of that that's not true. It is both correct and incorrect in this sense. Yes, headship and helpership are covenantal obligations that apply narrowly to marriage, but no... It's not correct to deny creational distinctions that make male and female fitted for such covenantal roles. 
There are creational differences of temperament and disposition between little boys and little girls. Anybody that has kids knows this. Those differences have social consequences and those differences must, not be, must be celebrated, not denigrated or ignored or dismissed as a social construct. What does that mean? It, it means that God has so made the world that there's a normative, holy connection between biological sex and what people call gender identity. Notice that the social roles of the first man and woman in Genesis 2 are inextricably connected to their biological sex. And the New Testament reveals that these roles are not merely descriptive but normative for every subsequent marriage. Moreover, the social order of the first family forms the foundation for leadership norms within the church. We'll talk about that more in the next two sessions. All of this presumes a normative connection between biological sex and the social roles designed for that sex. It also presumes that a man understands himself to be a man and a woman understands herself to be a woman. In other words, their self-concept, their gender identity as they perceive it matches their biological sex. It's not at odds with it. When someone adopts a gender identity at odds with their bodily identity, they are tearing asunder something that God has joined together. That a male body should coincide with a male self-concept. And that a female body should coincide with a female self-concept. That's how God designed the first man and the first woman. And that's how he designed all of us. Now, even though in a fallen world, some people may feel that connection to be broken. And they do. Clearly people do. We know that God aims to restore that connection. In the new creation. There will be no transgender identities in the new creation. So the phenomena that we see before us now are manifestations of brokenness. Of the way things ought not to be. When someone feels the connection to be broken. And they feel a self-identity at odds with their body. In the new creation, men will know themselves as men and women will know themselves as women. Even though there is no marriage in the age to come. So the distinction between male and female is biological. The distinction between male and female is social. And then the last thing is that the distinction between male and female is good. And this, this part is so key. Look at, uh, turn, turn your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 4. 1 Timothy chapter 4. I could spend a long, long time on these verses, but I'll, I'll resist the urge to do that. 1 Timothy chapter 4, really the first five verses are all important, but, but look at verse 4. Paul says, For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude. Um. If we read the context, I would show you that Paul was dealing with some people who were forbidding, some false teachers who were forbidding people from eating certain things and from marrying. Okay? They were saying that certain foods and marriage and everything that goes along with marriage, like sex, um, they're saying that those things are bad. Okay? And Paul is saying, wrong. Everything created by God is 
good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with gratitude, for it is sanctified by means of the word of God and prayer. Now, think about this. Paul's answering an error about sex and about food. And where does he get this idea that everything created by God is good? You should know this. He's getting it from Genesis, right? Paul's just reading his Bible. And in particular, he's reading in Genesis where it says throughout the six days of creation that God looked at what he had made and he said that it was good. And when God made the first male and female bodies, he said that it was very good. You remember that? So when Paul says everything created by God is good, he's standing on the authority of God's word. Okay, he's, he's attacking error with scripture. Everything created by God is good. And so now Paul affirms that what was true about male and female design before the fall, think about this. God said it was good before the fall, right? Before there was sin and brokenness in the world. Paul is saying that what God said was true about male and female design before the fall is still true after the fall. So all those distinctions that we just observed between male and female that were pre-fall, those distinctions are still good after the fall. Do you see the point that I'm making here? This means that even though God's good creation, God's good design and creation may be marred by the fall and by sin, God's good design is not erased by the fall and by sin. What that means for us is that our appraisal of male and female distinction in this fallen world must be the same as God's appraisal of male and female distinction. If God says that it's good, these distinctions, these social and biological distinctions, if God says that it is good, we must not say that it's bad. And what happens when someone who feels a gender identity conflict begins to change the way God created them and to mar and to destroy the way God created them. That's saying that it's bad, okay? That seems pretty straightforward, right? Who could possibly question the goodness of God's original creation? Well, there are in fact voices within the evangelical movement who question whether our understanding of the male-female difference is a good thing. Every year I go to a meeting of the Evangelical Theological Society. Every year it happens in November. I'll be there next month. In the last several years, one frequent person who comes to this is a, a woman named Megan DeFranza. She is, uh, has been at least, I don't know if she still is, but she has been a member of the Evangelical Theological Society. And this is all the Bible nerds together, okay. From evangelical schools, supposedly. Not liberal schools, but evangelical schools. She wrote a book a few years ago called Sex Difference in Christian Theology. She argues that the existence of intersex persons calls into question male-female difference that we read in Genesis 1 through 2. She suggests that Adam and Eve are progenitors of human difference, but not paradigms of such difference. Adam and Eve may manifest a sexual binary, but those two sexes... We, we shouldn't conclude from that that there are only two options. These are two among many more options. These are just the first two that we observe. 
And so she argues that in the new creation there will be male, female, and others who are more than male and female. And so her approach calls into question not only the existence of the male-female binary that we've been talking about, that distinction, it also calls into question whether or not that binary is good. Now, the question that we have to confront is, is her perspective on this right? Is it consistent with Scripture? Now, I argue that it's not. If everything created by God is good, then so is the distinction between male and female revealed at the beginning. Because God is the one who made the distinction. It means that your Christian counsel to a gender-confused child, and you're going to be seeing more and more of them, frankly, because of the environment that they're coming up in. There are so many people that are just interpreting adolescent unhappiness along these gender-confused lines. And they're being shoehorned into these identities that are not helpful to them. They're destructive to them. But if what I'm saying is true, it means that your counsel to a gender-confused child or to an adult must always be for their good and their flourishing. And their good and flourishing is defined by what God's Word says, not by what LGBT propagandists are saying. They aim to efface and destroy God's design through destructive hormone therapies and so-called sex change surgeries. That's what they want to do to children. I have story after story I could share along these lines. Um, In 2006, uh, there's a woman I read about who uh, in North Carolina, there was a woman who her whole life, she's an adult woman, but her whole life she had always wanted to be blind. She was healthy. She had healthy eyes. Um, But she always felt like a blind person trapped in a sighted person's body, as it were. And when she became an adult, she went to doctor after doctor trying to find someone help her to become blind. And, of course, no doctors wanted to help her do that because nobody thinks that's helping her, right? And so uh, she was frustrated by this until finally she found a psychiatrist who would help her. And he treated her for six months, get this, with drops of drain cleaner in her eyes and pain relievers until she finally, she went blind. She lost her sight. Now, you tell me, was the problem with her eyes or was it with her mind? Did she need to have her, gen- her confused mind conformed to her healthy eyes? Or did she need to have her healthy eyes conformed to her broken mind? You see what I'm saying here? Now, when I told you this story, and every time I've told this story, everybody groans when they hear it because it's macabre and horrible. And yet, how is that different from what we're doing when it comes to our sexual issues? Apparently, it's weird and bizarre if it's eyes, but not if it's sexual organs. It's okay to mar and destroy those in service of a broken mind, but it's not okay with this other thing. Listen, the reason I'm bringing this up is because this thinking has become mainstreamed now. And I hate it for adults. 
I really hate it because it's more and more becoming prescribed treatment for children. And so now in many places, if a child expresses any kind of gender-confused feelings, the prescribed treatment is hormone blockers as they approach puberty to block puberty from happening in their bodies. Why? So that when they become of age, adults, they can choose whether or not they want to have a full sex change surgery. And if you let puberty happen, then their, their bodies will have changed too much. To, it'll make the, the surgeries more difficult. So they stunt their development. Now, is there science to support this, that this is healthy for them? There's not. In fact, there's studies that show that it, it hurts their bone development. There's all kinds of potential problems with this, but they're doing it anyway. Um, some of you may have seen, some of you may have seen, um, what was it, two years ago, National Geographic magazine did a whole issue <clears throat> on transgenderism. I was scandalized by one picture in particular because they had one big glossy photo of what appeared to be a young teenage boy, 16 years old, I think was the age that they said. And the boy is standing there with his shirt off and he's holding his skateboard. And then you read the caption and you read that that's not a boy. And you look closer at the picture and you see two scars right here. This is a 16-year-old a, a girl who had, who's, had had a double mastectomy as a teenager and is now standing with her shirt off posing as a boy in National Geographic magazine. And I guess we're supposed to think that's normal. This is harming people, okay? This is not a, a theological debate that has no practical consequence. This is harming people. When we, uh, when we adopt this kind of ideology, it will harm people when it comes into their lives. Now you tell me what's good. To conform a troubled mind to a healthy body or to conform a healthy body to a troubled mind through surgical mutilation. Is a child's male body lying to him about his gender identity? Or is that child's mind lying to him about his gender identity whenever they're seem to not to be in sync. Listen, when parents in your church or somebody in your family come to you heartbroken over their child's experience with gender confusion, do you know what you're going to say to them? Uh, you have to have the clarity and the conviction to stand against the soul-destroying propaganda that's telling them to block their child's puberty and perhaps even to put them under the knife. If you would be a faithful disciple of Jesus, you must have the clarity and conviction to stand in that moment for what's good for them, even if they don't perceive it as good for them. Somebody's got to speak some sense into the situation. And you do it because you love them and because you want what's good for them. And love always rejoices in the truth, 1 Corinthians 13 says. Love rejoices in the truth. If you love somebody, you don't just tell them what they want to hear. You tell them what is good for them, what they need to hear. So if you love that gender-confused child or the parents of that gender-confused child, you will grieve and you will weep with them over the, the distress that they're all going through. And then you point them to the, 
the path to wholeness and to healing, which means you'll point them to the gospel for one thing, but it also, also means you will always encourage such people to resolve their self-conflict in a way that affirms and celebrates their biological sex, not in a way that attempts to destroy it. And if ever there were a need for clarity and conviction on this question, it's now. Because this is a challenge not merely for those experiencing transgender conflicts. This is a challenge for every single Christian trying to be faithful in the face of mounting external pressures. Now, I've, I've been out talking about these things and from California to Texas to Louisville and, and elsewhere. And the, the, the kinds of people who are coming up to me after I'm finished talking are people who are working in public schools, school nurses, teachers. Um, this issue, the people on the front lines here are not preachers. It's not me. It's you. It's anybody that has to deal with an HR department at their work. It's anybody that's dealing with state-mandated definitions of what male and female are and how you're to refer to them. And so what I'm saying to you is that as Christians, you've got to have the, your convictions straightened out before you can even begin to think about how you're supposed to respond to these things. Biblical Christians have long been making the case that while God has created man and woman equally in his image, he's also designed them with distinct and complementary differences. They have physical differences related to the body's organization for reproduction. They experience social differences that are related to those biological differences. And at the end of the day, what God declares to be good is what is good. And that's what we must affirm and help others to see as well, even if fallen minds don't perceive it to be so. Father, I pray that you would use um, these moments to help us to think more clearly about the way you've designed us as male and female. I pray that you would help us to be more compassionate towards confused people around us who are moving in more and more self-destructive ways. Help us to love them. Help us to help them to speak the truth, to persuade. Lord, make us fruitful. Lord, I pray that you would help us to prevent people from harming themselves. And Lord, I pray that the spirit of darkness and the propaganda all around us, that we would be able to poke holes in it with your truth. So Lord, I pray that you would help us in this, and we ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you, Dr. Burke. Uh, at this time, we're going to go ahead and uh, take a 10-minute break. Uh, just like we did always, uh, like, like la last night, uh, take your break, uh, have some coffee out here, but try to be back in here uh, in 10 minutes so that we can uh, kind of get things rolling.